Hello and welcome to another episode of the 237 Film School Podcast with me, Martin Law. On today's show, I will be chatting with the very talented Deborah Haywood, who made her feature film debut with Pincushion, screened at Venice Film Festival in 2017. The film came out on DVD in the UK a few months ago, and there was one tweet by Deborah in particular which I noticed, and to be honest, it was quite inspiring and gained a lot of traction, where she basically had said how when she was 17 years old she had a baby and her mother told her about a position that was available at the local primary school as a lollipop lady but Deborah dared to dream bigger she's always loved film, TV, creative writing in 2007 she directed her first short film called Lady Margaret which I will post a link to in the description of the episode She's made several other short films, including Sis, Biatch, and Twinkle Twinkle. And just like her feature film, they are quite dark in tone. So I wanted to chat to Deborah about her inspiration, her writing style, and her journey to getting to where she is now. So here is my chat with Deborah Haywood. When you were younger, how much did you think realistically think this might eventually happen for you well I didn't I didn't really think it would happen I think when I was at school I used to really like English and storytelling and writing poems and stuff like that so I always had this kind of like oh god if only I could do that but I didn't really think it was a real thing that people did and then I wasn't thick at school but I was um I wasn't there very much put it that way and um I had, a, I had a rough time at school. I was on antidepressants at 14, ended up leaving school at 15 with not, not doing my exams. So I was in a pretty bad place. But I was like, well, there's always the biscuit factory, which, you know, everyone around our way went to work at the biscuit factory. So I went for a job there with my mate, Shelley, and my dad took us and I failed the test. And... Um, <laughs> And I was like, oh, and she got in and uh, and I was like, oh, my God, you know, like what is going to become of me if I can't even get in the biscuit factory? So that was a real low. And then I was still in kind of a not a great place and I had my daughter when I was 17. I was like, you know, textbook pregnant at 16, baby at 17. And I think having it, having her really made me re- made me feel like I was such a second class citizen and and I remember like Maggie Thatcher and all that no it wasn't was it Maggie it was somebody Peter Peter somebody a Tory was saying oh you know there's all these teenage girls getting pregnant so that, that they can get council flat and I remember feeling really bad about myself and um wanting to get a job and my mum who's you know she kind of not out of spite or anything, but she thought, you know, my life was over as, as well when I'd had a baby. And she was like, well, she worked as like, you know, like a pra- playground supervisor at school where you're like in the playground look, watching the kids at playtime and dinner time. She she worked as one of them and she was like, well, you know, I could put your name down for a lollipop lady if, you know, one comes up kind of thing. And I was just like, oh my God. I mean, you know, not, not that I think that a lollipop lady's bad, but you know, they're like the heroes of the school, aren't they? You feel really special when you get stopped, you know, there's tra- stopped traffic for you and then you cross the road. It's like, oh my God, I'm so important. But, you know, they do only work a few hours a day. So, you know, you can't earn a living doing that. It's more of a thing for retired people or whatever. And I was just so crushed. And then I think I got a job as a receptionist temping because I couldn't get a job like interview wise. And then, and then somebody told me uh, who worked down the factory, 
about these access courses because his daughter was going to do one and they said you know you could go and do an access course where you got your qualifications that you didn't get at school and then you could go to university and she was going to go and become an English teacher and I was like oh my god I want to be an English teacher so so I went and did it but it was it was so hard because I was so inarticulate and you know like when they said oh you, you know here's your first assignment I was like oh my you know I thought it was like a police assignment and I was like, oh, what are we doing an assignment? Um, and they'd use words that I didn't understand. Like, I remember, like, writing perceive down. And, like, I used to keep a little notebook. And then at night time, I'd go back and look through my dictionary, which they'd bought me when I left my receptionist job at the trailer factory for as a leaving present. So I used to go home every night and look at all these words that, you know, the tutor had said so I could understand what she was on about. So it was a bit of a slog. Um, and then I went to Derby University and I did creative writing and literature and um and it was tough but I really really loved it and then ended up getting a first which I was like you know like oh my god this is just like an absolute dream come true then one day I went to the toilet and it said like on the um on the toilet wrong thing it said uh, Mickey Mouse degrees please take one and I was like yeah it was like the third bottom from in the league whatever it is at the time but um it didn't matter because it just you know changed my life and turned me around and and I think you know it, it took having my daughter to make me push you know have something to push against because I think when you do feel like you're at the bottom it's like well you know it gives you something to strive for I didn't want to be you know kind of like I didn't I wanted to give her an example so she thought that she could achieve something and did didn't feel bad about herself you know like ashamed of me or feel less than so and 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 it did turn out okay she did you know I forced her to go to university and she's she's now a primary school teacher so so what happened after you finished that course then what happened between that and say I mean I, I watched a couple of your short films earlier so Sis yeah. was 2011 so between yeah, I just was temping temping and um for 10 years probably I was I, yeah so and then I saw an advert by Ian Media. I had done a couple of like development scheme things, trying to write. I was first I started trying to write a TV drama because that's what I was most familiar with, and then films. And uh, I did a couple of you know like development scheme things. There was one at Lighthouse in Brighton where you went and developed a, a script, and so I did that. And then and then I saw an advert. By from EM Media looking for short film scripts and um, I submitted there and then got selected and then we went through a, a period a development period where you rewrote I think I think you did six drafts or you had six meetings and then at the end I thought I would get paired up with a director and the director would you know direct the script but then Paul Welsh who was um, the exec there was like oh no you're going to direct it and I was like, oh, I don't know what a director does. And uh, he was like, well, you like you write like a director, so you know, here's your chance to find out. And um, and I absolutely shat myself. And because um, I was like, oh my god, that's just too scary. Especially because I had a breakdown in the meantime and spent like a year in um, a kind of mental health place. And so I was always scared of having another one. And I was like, this could break me. And also my dad just died three days before they told me that I'd got this commission, which I'm always gutted about because I'm like, oh, God, you know, I was still a loser when my dad died. I wish that he knew um, yeah. that I'd, you know, 
accomplish something. So, yeah, so, and I was like, well, you know, my dad's died. I've just went for it. But it was, like, probably the most terrifying experience of my life. And I think, you know, I'd been through a lot of shit with various things in my life. But I still don't think, you know, I think, I still don't think I've been as scared as directing that first film. What year was that then? Which which short film was that? That was Lady Margaret. It was um, 2007. And how old would you have been then? I was 36 because we did it in the in in the winter, like January, February, sometime. 36 then is yeah. you know to some people that's older, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people now want to be making stuff, you know, in their early 20s. Do you feel that you you personally would not never have been ready earlier on based on your personal circumstances? No, I wouldn't have been ready. But also, I think because of I'd already had a life, I think I'd got an understanding of people. And also, I think I'd had enough time of not being a teenager to kind of be able to look at that more objectively, um, those experiences. But yeah, I don't know. It just happened how it happened, didn't it? I I wasn't really thinking about my age, really. I was just thinking about trying to be, have some kind of self-esteem, really. That's what I was always after. I was like, you know, please accept me as a whole person who's not, you know, I remember once when I'd got my my daughter and one of my mates was going to um, college before me, you know, everyone, because when I had my daughter, you know, all my friends were then like going to college and everything. And I was like not doing anything because I was, you know, on benefits and a single mother. And I remember one of my friends said to me, oh, yeah, oh, well, we're doing sociology at Burton College. And I was like, oh, what's that? And she was like, oh, well, it's, you know, like, study of like society and um, and we're talking about class and I was like oh and uh, she was like yeah and there's like um, upper class middle class and working class and then you know like kind of like different divisions in, in that and I um, and I was like oh what are we then she was like well I'm I'm working class but you're on the underclass and I remember feeling like such a sense of shame and I was like oh god I'm the underclass. So I think it was like, you know, that feeling, that feeling of shame of like, please, I wanted to be like a real person and not a somebody who walked underneath the pavement, if you know what I mean. But I mean, like you said, though, by being older and more mature and wiser and having lived a life and have, having lived some difficult situations, that has naturally made you a better storyteller, though, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Because you've got more to write about, I think. And you've seen more and you've experienced more and you understand more and you've got more empathy by that age and more, I think you're more, more in touch with your emotions and you're more thoughtful and you're more observant. Whereas I think when you're you're younger, you're too busy living your life to, you know, stop and look around you, if you know what I mean. I mean, with, with obviously a lot of students up and down the country doing screenwriting or film production, would you kind of just say to them to be patient? I mean, obviously... Yourself, you were 36 when you finally got a chance to make your first short film. And you've said yourself that you were ready when you were older. You know, you were, you felt like you had something to say. So would you just tell younger people to kind of just be patient? Is that your advice? I think so. Patient and persistent. And But, you know, I don't know. I mean, it just it, your journey is your journey, isn't it? For me, it was like from making, from starting to write to making my first feature film, Pincushion, was 20 years. And it was 10 years from making my short film, first short film, to making my first speech film. So, you know, that's a long journey. And they say, oh, overnight success takes 20 years. And it turned <laughs> out exactly 20 years for me. But also what was shocking was like when then I realised 
making a feature that actually overnight success can be overnight failure because if Pinkerton hadn't taken off and it had just bombed, then all that 20 years would have, you know, gone for that and I could have crashed. You know, it could go either way. You just don't know, do you? Well, we'll get on to Pincushion shortly. So obviously that is your feature debut, but I'd like to just discuss a couple of your short films that I saw on your Vimeo page, starting with Sis, yeah. which was 2011. So how did that come about? Were you just writing short films and you submitted it for some funding or how did you get the opportunity to make that? Yeah, I think I was already on that trail then. So how it worked back then, which I'm, I don't know whether it still does, I'm sure it does, is, you know, if you get to make um, a short film. So I made Lady Margaret and then and then me and Tina Pavlik, the producer, were selected for Screenings National Start of Tomorrow off the back of it. And so that meant that funders were interested. And, and I think, you know, places like, well, it's a, it was Film Council then and EM Media and all the regional sites. And now it's BFI and BFI Hubs. But I think it's all the same, you know, ethos kind of thing. So I think if the, if you make something that gets interest or, you know, that they see promising, then 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 they like to track you and nurture you and encourage, you know. So then so then every year they did um, when there was a funding round, I would write something and submit it or, or you know, try just try and make a short every year or every other year. So I think I made four or five that way. So my first one was Lady Margaret, which I wrote and directed. Then the second one was Tender, which was written by Roger Hadfield. And then Sis was my third. And I'd by that time, I think there was a scheme called Cinema Extreme, um, which was run by um, the Film Council and the Bureau. And it was a bigger short. It was like £50,000 short. And you got to make it on actual film rather than digital. And so me and Tina was got onto that with sis and um and then part part of the way through it became obvious that we wasn't going to get the money to make it because the year before there'd been a film called the red little red hoodie which was a kind of pedophile-esque kind of story and they'd already said oh well we've already had you know like pedophile story so so i wrote something else for that didn't get on it anyway but we withdrew sis and then put it into regional back back into the regional pot so I think it was £8,000 budget rather than a £50,000 budget, which which was a struggle. But I think, you know, it, it did take a bit of convincing people to let us make that because of the tone, you know, people like the tone. How can it be funny if, you know, like a pair of little girls are, you know, going to track a paedophile down kind of thing that, you know, it's yeah, like... It's, yeah. I was trying to describe it to someone earlier, actually. <laughs> I, I, I liked, I really liked Sis. I, I preferred it too. I watched Sis, Biatch and Twinkle Twinkle and I preferred Sis. But like I said, I was trying to describe it in, in, in a way, I guess, that makes, would make you want to watch it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a way, I guess it's the same with obviously your feature, Pincushion. It's hard to kind of ask people to watch a film that's quite uncomfortable to watch, isn't it? But is yeah. that just kind of what you like to do, kind of push those boundaries when you're writing? I don't know. I think I'm just drawn to that. I think I've always, like, even from a kid, I was always drawn to, like, the darkness, you know, anything that was dangerous. I was like, oh, there, you know. And I think that's just where my mind goes. At the moment, I'm I'm writing um, a musical, a family musical, and it's been a really good exercise, actually, and I'm really enjoying it. Because, like, at first, you know, my first six or seven drafts of it have all been 
dark and you know going and I'm not, I'm, but now I'm like no I can't you know I've got to like I'm still trying to you know I think I've still got a bit of darkness in there but um it's been a real exercise you know to make it a family film because I think yeah because I I don't know I just I am dark in my writing and also I do like dark stuff you know I like to watch dark stuff um but it has been a big learning curve realizing that oh actually you know this stuff that you become immune to when you're writing it and then you see the effect that it has on an audience and you're like oh wow you know um it's a kind of a responsibility but also I think you shouldn't really think about that either still confused about the whole thing but well, no, I think every writer has, has the right to be able to create a world that they want. It's, you know, it's, if an audience takes to it, then that's good. But at the end of the day, it's your own your own story. So I feel everyone has a right to that. So with, with Sis, you mentioned that you, you got £8,000 for it. The, the two little girls in it, are they relatives of yours? Because I was watching it again thinking, how have you managed to convince the parents of these kids to, to allow them to be in that? And I don't mean that in a horrible way, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because of the darkness of it. Yeah, well, um, so we put an advert out looking for kids at the local community centre, and um, and nobody turned up because <laughs> we were. It was like, and it was like X Factor had just become big. So I was like, oh well, you know, we'll do drop flyers everywhere and then get people to bring their kids. And you know, I thought in the age of X Factor and everyone was, you know, really into that at the time, um, that people would want, you know, turn up. But nobody really turned up, and um, so we were actually started like going around knocking on doors, saying, "Have you got any kids?" Um, <laughs> and you know, on the estate where we was in this community centre. And then my mate, um, my best mate Rosalie, from when I was like four, she was helping me, and uh, and she was like, "Oh, Dave, her like partner, Dave's Lee's got kids. I'll, I'll get him to ring them and ask them to come down." So they, uh, the elder one, turned up. And um, and I fell in love with her. And then I uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, we found, you know, the main one. And I thought I'd found another little girl who was she was a bit shy, but she was, you know, really nice and cute and all the rest of it. And then and then I went to meet uh, Demi's mom because she hadn't come, you know, to the audition and then um, did a little improvise with Demi. Because, you know, the execs want to see who you're casting. So I was, like, filming with my camera. And then Billy, who was Demi's little sister, started joining in on the improvisation and really was into it. And um, and yet downstairs, you know, she wouldn't speak to me because she was, you know, three and hiding behind her mum kind of thing. But as soon as I started doing this improvisation and playing, she was just, like, right there getting stuck in and... Um, we ended up filming her as well, and I was like, oh, my God, you know, I, I love her too. So ended up having both of them and then mourn because I was friends with Rosalie and, you know, they were kind of part of her family, just was fine about everything. And um, and they were that young that they didn't know what they were doing anyway, you know, and everything's out of sequence, so it's not like they... You know, they did They did know that twat was a swear word because, like, by the end of the week, you know, they kept saying, oh, Deb, I had to say twat, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was like, they were, you know, there was, like, five, Demi was five and Billy was three. So it's it's quite quite young, I think, Yeah, too. and you used them again, didn't you, in Twinkle yes. Twinkle? Yes, I did. And they're teenagers now. Oh, right. But in Twinkle Twinkle, they're again kind of, 
again, it's quite hard to explain, but they're acting out, you know, they're playing a little game and she's acting out things that are happening in her home life. And again, it's yeah. quite dark stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's very dark. But the same, again, they didn't know what the storyline was. And it was a shame because uh, both those films, you know, when we went to festivals or there were screeners or whatever, they weren't old enough to be allowed in to watch them. Yeah, of course. I think it's brilliant. And, and in terms of directing kids who are basically not actors at all, they're just there because you've found them or whatever. Mm. You know, how, how is that experience compared to directing professionals? I just know with kids, I think the younger, the better, actually, because I think when you start getting to about eight, then you start becoming self-conscious and, you know, you don't want to do stuff or you're aware of stuff that you're doing. But I think under that, it's like playing and, you know, you can do, go for it. Although, you know, getting them to do it like more than once is is a challenge. And um, I had to use lots of bribes. Oh, right. So that's the real difference between a child and, a, and an adult, that they don't really understand why they're having to repeat it. Yes, yes. And you have to pay them in stickers and sweets and <laughs> promises of stuff. <laughs> and the short films then that you made over that 10-year period, were you mm. happy with everything that you made? Did you have to make any changes because you were obviously getting funding? Was there any, did you have any you know, creative issues that, in that way? Well, I think everyone, everyone that we made, I think you know, I wanted to self-harm when I saw the assembly. And then, you know, you get feedback from the execs and often it's really tough. And yeah, so I think that that was, you know, always it's like, oh, my God, it feels like life or death. Like the stakes are so massive because you think, oh, if I, this one fails or, you know, if it's crap, then I'm not going to get another one. And, you know, you've always got your eye on that feature of dream and thinking, oh, you know, if this short film's crap, then I won't get to make a feature. So I think, you know, it feels like everything's like so heightened and you know, massive. But I, I think Biatch was, I think I learned a lot on that one, actually, because I'd written this, I'd written this script, and it was more like, it was more comedic. And it was, it was more like Rita Sue and Bob 2 kind of thing. And then I'd been working with a producer on and I was doing a, a writing a feature film about dogfighting, which ended up not getting made because I realised that actually it's really just too hard to work with dogs. And she was like, oh, well, we, you know, like we need to show the film council and funders that you've you've worked with dogs so that, you know, we've got, we can get the funding to make Bite, the dog fighting feature. And I was like, oh, she was like, so can you write some dogs into this short film? Which I kind of did, but I always felt that they were shoehorned in and, and then writing that those into the story kind of, changed the tone of the whole film so it ended up more like a drama when it, you know it had been a comedy to start off with and and then it, I just felt it didn't really work you know as a whole thing at the end like other people will say oh yeah no it's fine it works it's whatever but I think because it was far you know like removed from what I originally set wanted to do I think I've always thought yeah no it, it doesn't it doesn't work and plus, yeah, I had like, a really ex bad experience making it. And, you know, I couldn't really, uh, you know, I still I have still never sat and watched it all the way through because it just brings back, like, trauma of the shoot and stuff. Right. I mean, it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, obviously watching it and not knowing anything about it, it all seemed to work for me. You know what I mean? With with the end, with the, with the dogs and everything. But now that you've said it, I can kind of see that it, the dogs are a bit of a random element mm. of that story. So it's interesting. And if you don't mind me asking then, over this kind of 10-year period, and I guess even like 
now? Like, w- did you have a regular income as well? Were you still earning money another way on the side, or were you just getting money through the stuff, the work that you were doing, like the short films? Well, I was uh, no, and I wasn't getting any money through the short films. I was married, and so I didn't have to worry so much about you know like getting paid like that week sort of thing. But I did script editing and also um, development money. And my flat is house and association flat. So it's not, you know, the rent's not much. So so that's how I survived. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, there are, like I said, there are loads of people out there trying to get stuff done. And it's all, it all comes down to that situation of, you know, people need to eat I guess don't they you need to still oh, um, tell me about things. it I'm back in that situation now I'm like my marriage like my marriage like split up just like two months before I made pincushion so I was in the right state when I made that but also now I'm like oh my gosh you know like it's it's tough and it's like I do see um not that I think that those people shouldn't be there but I do see what why how the industry is made up of more privileged people because yeah. it is hard to survive and now I'm thinking all the time I'm like oh god shall I go back to the pizza or I could work with the pizza or oh I live next door to a hotel maybe I could go and you know make beds or you know all the time I'm like worrying about money and yeah I'm like living at my mate's house now for free I mean it's crazy isn't it really I guess people you know people who've seen pincushion for example or they may have seen an interview you've done with the BFI on YouTube and you know, they just naturally would think that you are now fully fledged in the film industry and that you are now one of the privileged. But I mean, obviously, that's not the case at all. And you are still fighting to to do what you, you want to do. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's how it should be. You know, there's no I think entitlement is bad for you because it stops you striving. It stops you striving for the best. It stops you striving for the stories and helps you dig deep, deeper. I think, you know, if you like, oh, this is, you know, what I have my life is now I think you don't strive so hard so I'm, I haven't got any complaints about about it really and we'll, we'll go on to talking about how pincushion was made in a second but after the success of pincushion and you know it was at Venice Film Festival and it's been nominated for a few awards and now it's obviously on DVD have you had any other offers from producers or have you got an agent anything like that yeah, I've got an agent. I've had an agent like all along, really, from when I was doing my shorts. And yeah, no, I'm sent. I get sent scripts quite a bit, and the, the you know there are a couple that I'm talking to people about now, um, which I do like. Um, a lot of the scripts that I get sent, you know, I are things that you know, are good scripts and they're films that I go and see. But I think unless I really personally connect with a script and feel that I can bring something to it or elevate it in some way I think it's I I wouldn't just accept a script because there was an offer there but I think it takes so long to write a script and you know you've got to do justice to that work and that idea and everything and also you know I know I also I've kind of got a more sense about the audience now as well it's like what people will go to and and I'm like, oh, you know, is this worth the slog? You've got to think, is this worth the slog for them to try and get people to go and see it, if you know what I mean? And I think that was something that I wasn't really aware of before because your focus is always on, like, getting the, getting a feature film made. You don't even think about anything afterwards. It's just like, because, you know, that's the goal. That's what you're working towards. That You know, and that's such a big mountain in itself. But now I've, like, you know, got that mountain, but also the mountain's got, you know, 
stuff on it because you know that there's like other things involved af- afterwards. And with regards to like even TV work, I mean, Doctors, for example, the BBC, that's I think that's in Birmingham, isn't it? Which is yeah. relatively close yeah. to you. So would you ever take on like a writing gig on Doctors to kind of help pay the bills or is that just something you're just not kind of interested in? No, I would do. Um, I just, I don't know, that just hasn't come up. I would, I would love to write for TV and yeah, and direct for TV. You know, I have been for meetings, but nothing's happened so far. But having said that, I am really, really busy. I think what the problem is, is when you, when you get a gig, so I got a gig to, um, you know, like from different funders for development money, but it takes ages for that to come through. So now I've just got to the point where now like the money started to come in and that, you know, for development money. And I've got like four projects that I'm commissioned to do. But, you know, it can take a year for those contracts to come through and you get some money. And then so I think making Pincushion afterwards, after you've made Pincushion, you know, you start going around the festivals and then you've got the release. So that's like 18 months where you can't take on any work and your mind's so full of all the stuff that, you know, you can't work anyway. But you're not uh, your money from getting paid to make Pincushion has finished because that finishes when you finish the edit. So there's that like period so unless, it, luckily, I mean, not luckily, but luckily, you know, I was breaking up in my marriage. So I'd got the money from my marriage to like see me through that time. But now I think, I don't know how I would survive from making the film and then that after aftermath of the film, if I was doing it again, I'd be um, up shit creek. So yeah, so now I'm just about, it's becoming established enough to like, not worry about that so much but then you I think freelance you're always worrying anyway because you're like well that's all right but you know what about next year or you know the year after that or whatever I don't know I don't know the answer to anything you know all this is new every day is new to all of us as humans isn't it but this you know because it's not a path that's well trodden I'm I don't know I'm still just like working it all out the reason why I'm coming at these kind of angles is because I think there's plenty of people out there who want to work in film but we just don't have a clue at all I know, I get so like, you know, the messages every day about it. I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know. Um, no, but it's good that obviously you are open and honest and, and able to talk about it. I mean, you mentioned that you've, you've had like four development things come through. Are they kind of jobs come through from your agent or is that things your own networking? Is that something that's important for you to do? Uh, well, I think if you've got an agent, you still it's still important to network and get yourself out there. And I think... I misunderstood what agents were when I first started out. But I remember my first agent, he said, because I thought the agents got you work, but they, it doesn't really work like that. Uh, I remember my, it was Toby Moorcroft and he said to me, agents here in the UK, I think in the US it's different. Um, but an agent's job is to um, guide you, uh, protect you and promote you. So they'll get you meetings, but they'll, you know, a lot of it's meet and greet and everything. So it's up to you to then build off that and you know use those meetings for you know maybe go back with something or develop a relationship with those people and then they'll guide you you know it's like oh should you take this gig what about should you write that story should you go and you know try and meet these people um that kind of thing and then protection is you know with your contracts they'll fight to protect you so you're you know looked after or not um exploited or you know whatever so yeah so I think you know it's always up to you so so my development deals that I've got at the minute are 
actually I've got three. One's not finalised yet. Two of them are projects that I've instigated. One of them is one that came from one of these meet and greet meetings where, you know, the producer was talking about what was on their slate and then I was talking about what I was interested in. And then we've, you know, I was interested in one of the projects that she was doing and then I ended up coming on board with that. So that's how that happened. But the other two are my original ideas. Right. So how do you then turn that into essentially a paycheck so it's development you get a development fee but do you pass that script on to your agent who then ships it round and gets money from some sort of producer or some sort of scheme is that how that works no i've with so i've got my producer from pincushion so we went in with an idea to the bfi and then another idea to bbc films and then that's how those deals came about so i think he would then apply to the bfi for development money and I don't really know how the BBC one worked. It, you know, it's like the writer or the director, you're not really privy to all that stuff. That's producer yeah. kind of stuff. So I don't know what happened. I heard you mention in a previous podcast that you were booted off iFeatures. So just talk me through mm. the stages of actually of, of writing it, first of all. I don't know if it was written maybe even 10 years before you made it and then eventually getting to eventually what was, I think, BFI who funded it, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, it was. But that's one of the examples when you were saying, oh, you know, should you tell 20 year olds if, you know, whatever. And I think when I was doing eye features, I, you know, I still wasn't ready. And I've still, and I'm glad that that happened, that I didn't make it with eye features because I was kind of trying to do the audience thing because they were like, oh, we want thumbs on seats. So I was trying to make it more commercial and more teeny. And I ended up going back to my original idea of it before that. So I'm really glad that although it's gutting at the time and I was like kind of devastating and it felt like really public that, you know, everyone knew that we'd been booted off five features. But now I'm like, no, that I'm glad. So, yes, no, I've written when I wrote Lady Margaret, I wrote a treatment for Pincushion, which was about 10 pages. And I think we got a bit of development money for it from Ian Media and then nothing happened and we didn't get a script edit. I don't know. I think just nothing happened with it. But in the, you know, I was still making, trying to make shorts as well. And then I ended up taking it to Binger, which is in Amsterdam. And and they were like, oh, this is very plotty. And I was like, you know, back to my shame thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so plotty. Um, and they were, <laughs> And they were like, oh, you know, like, you know, a film, they're very art house over there. And they were like, you know, a film doesn't have to have a plot even or a story. It can be, you know, just about a feeling or an idea or um, and then told me to go away and like just write scenes with characters, but no having no plots or no, you know, big events happening or whatever. So I went away and did that because I was like, well, they know better. But all the time I was like, oh, but I still really, you know, that's the story that I wanted to tell kind of thing. But because they were like, you know, very established. And there was people from LA coming in, doing master classes and, you know, like Molly, who was Lars Van Trier's editor. And, you know, so I was like, well, you know, I'll learn from the masters kind of thing. Um, and then I got back to the UK and um, the BFI were like, um, you know, where's the story kind of thing. And I was like, <laughs> oh no, I'm so ashamed. I've got no story. Um, but, you know, I learned such a lot about the characters doing that, which, you know, so I can't regret it. And then the eye features came up and um, I 
approached Gavin and said, you know, would you like to come into I Featured? And he was like, yeah, sure. So we went in and they were all like, oh, bums on seats. So then, you know, I like did a U-turn. And I was like, oh, it's got to be like this then, you know, like probably like, you know, with seeing girls and, you know, more like 13. Can you remember that teenage girl, 13? Yeah, yeah, with um, Evan Rachel yeah. Wood, isn't it? Yeah, so I was like, oh, it's got to be more like that because they were like, we want buns on sea, what's well, you know, but also it's quite dark. Um, and then we didn't get any further with that. And somebody told me that it, they were like, people felt uncomfortable with material and stuff. So that was absolutely gutting. And then uh, Lizzie Frankie, who's been a big champion of mine, she was at EM Media when I did Lady Margaret and kind of tracked me ever since and encouraged me and which has been you know wonderful she she read it and she was like because she'd read the first treatment in uh, EM Media you know in 2008 or whenever it was and she said oh you know I read your eye features treatment we'd only got as far as the treatment we didn't write a script and uh, she said you know if this is the story that you want to tell them you know we'll support you she said but it feels very different in tone and, you know, execution than the original one that you wrote back at EM Media. And um, she said, so, you know, like what, I, what I'm going to say is, you know, just go off for six months and think about what you really want, to, you know, the story that you really want to tell. And then we'll talk again. So, you know, I went off and thought about it. And I went to San Francisco, actually, because my husband was working at Facebook. So we were staying over there. And then Gavin, my producer, was over visiting his fiance um, at this dance company that he's working at. And, um, and I remember we sat outside this cafe and, um, and he was like, you know, have you had a think about what you want, what story you want to tell? And I was like, well, yeah, I have. And I said, but, you know, like I've always felt that I've kind of betrayed myself by going down these other routes that people have told me to. And I said, you know, I still feel that the one that I wrote back then was the one that was, you know, like closest to my heart, especially in tone, because it was more fairy tale tone and kind so of is like... that the first one, sorry? Is that the yeah. first one that you sent to Amsterdam? Yeah. And they... Yeah. Right, okay. They said it was plotty. So, yeah, this is the first one that I wrote when I was writing after I'd made Lady Margaret. And he said, oh, you know, like, why haven't you showed it me? And I was like, oh, well, I'm too ashamed because, it's, you know, when I got to Amsterdam, they said I've, it was really plotting. They couldn't understand it. So he was like, well, send it to me. So after he'd gone, I emailed it to him. And then he phoned me up and he was like, oh, you know, I really love this. There's loads of stuff in it that's great. And, you know, I can't believe you hadn't showed it to me before. And I was like, well, I was ashamed. And um, so, so then we went to the BFI and I was like, you know, this is the story that I want to tell and then I spent the next three years writing it and then that was I mean it did change in that time and developed and grew and we worked with Celine her dad who's brilliant who was the development person for the BFI network thing at the time and yeah and then you know then we put in for production money and luckily they said yes and what was the the final budget then if you if you know I think it was I think it was eight fifty, if I remember correctly. I know I kept getting it wrong, but I think it was <laughs> under a million, definitely under a million. Yeah. I know that obviously, even once films have been made, I know that entering into competitions, festivals, and stuff that adds on quite a bit, doesn't it? Really? 
I don't know, because look, the good thing is that when you're making shorts, you're applying for festivals, so you have to find the money or, you know, grovel for a waiver fee. And But when you've made a feature, like, you don't have to do any of that. The producer or somebody else does it, the sales agent or... So, yeah, so I didn't have to do apply for any festivals, which was great because then you don't know really what, unless you ask, you don't know what you're getting rejected from. So so you haven't got all, <laughs> all of that, um, you know, hurt as well. I've heard in, in other interviews you've done that you've mentioned, and obviously you've told me your story today as well, that you've started out as a writer and that that's what you kind of have always considered yourself more of than anything else. So you've mentioned there, like you're not really, you didn't produce it. You're not really interested in that side of things. Is that something that you think will change or are you always going to stick with you prefer the writing? And, and now that obviously you, you've started directing, you love that too. Yeah. I don't think I could be a producer. I think a producer, I still, you know, it's just so hard to be a producer. And like, I know people say about being paid as writers and directors and yeah, it's hard, but producers as an independent producer, that's just so hard to make a living. You have to have another job, I think. I don't know, uh, or be independently wealthy or have, a, you know, a, a spouse or partner that earns a lot of money because I just don't know how you would do it. But also the job in itself is like, it's about three or four different people's jobs all into one person. I just don't know. I just wouldn't have, like, I just haven't got a big enough brain for that kind of stuff and also you have to know about business which I'm still like I can't get my head around a lot and know about audiences which I'm still like grappling with trying to understand but then also part of me thinks that you know I shouldn't understand it because then I'll be thinking about it um which so that I'm still a bit confused about all that and then you know like you need to know about budgets and all you know it's just too much to know and too many roles in within that role no I haven't got that kind of brain (laughs) <laughs> and your producer Gavin was he heavily involved on set or was he more of the kind of let you get on with your creative side he was let me get on with my creative side but also he's very creative as well so I could always talk to him about stuff and but he was always there if I you know some days he'd come and sit with me or you know be around but often he was you know working doing whatever he was doing but he was always there, you know, if I needed, if, you know, like the first came up to me and said, you know, we've run out of time, we've got to drop, you know, or the line producer said, you know, you've got to drop, we can't do this, you've got to drop this scene, this scene or that scene. You know, Gavin would always, I'd be able, you know, I think, okay, I think we can do without this scene. But then I'd phone him and say, look, can we do without this scene? Will the story still work? Sometimes you're so kind of, your head's so crammed with what you're doing and the next scene that you, you know, that you, you know, it's nice to have that somebody to ask who's not got you know is probably you know doing something else and they can look at it more objectively so it was nice to have him there if I needed to and you know he was so involved in the story and everything that he could always say yes or oh yes you can but you know try and get this in on another scene or whatever so yeah I think we worked well together and with regards to assembling the rest of the crew cinematographer etc was that a choice between yourselves or was that more of a case of the producer gives you a list of what's in the budget and so on because I know the cinematographer was um, Nicola Daly who I I don't think had actually worked on any of your short films no no so was that something that you know had you thought had you planned to use some of the same crew from your shorts as, as that comfort factor I think yeah I would have liked to but I think I don't know people aren't always available or you can't afford them or you know it just 
that's that's just how it worked out at the time. Um, I know Nicola. I was talking to somebody that Alex Kirkland, who's director writer, that I was at Binger with, and I was saying, oh, you know, I want describing the kind of DOP that I wanted, and he was like, oh, I, you know, it's, that sounds like Nicola because he'd worked with her before, but she'd worked, you know, she'd trained and worked in Australia, and then she'd come back because her mum had got arthritis, and she happened to be from Derby. So I met up with her, and as soon as I met up with her, I think because, you know, I I know everyone moans saying, oh, you know, it's all like Oxbridge, you know, in TV or whatever, but, it, you know, I think it is that thing. It's like because you feel a connection with people who are like you, and then so you bring them on to work with you because you feel that you'll be able to work better with them. And so, you know, Nicola is from Derby, working class background, and Adam Fletcher, who is a sound, he's from Derby, working class background. So, so, you know, I hired people like that that I felt comfortable with. And so I think, you know, Gavin, I think either I would come up with a list and give them to Gavin and Gavin would have a bigger think and picture. And I think especially because he'd worked at creative, creative skill set, he knew a lot of people. So he was like finding people that he thought would suit me. And then I would go meet them and talk with them. And so, yeah, I think... And then Alex Taylor had made Spaceship. He was very helpful because he's kind of got a similar personality to me. So I used a lot of his crew because I knew if he got on with them, I'd get on with them, that kind of thing. And then Lizzie Frankie introduced us to Francesca, who was the set designer. She'd met her at, I think, Berlin at some, you know, kind of like talent dinner or something like that. And so, yeah, it's like all different ones. But I think, you know, always like, I'd go with my belly, not only who I like their ideas, but who I felt that comfortable with. Obviously, the film's on DVD now, and I really yeah. like I really like the artwork for it. I think the you know the DVD cover is great. It's like a cartoon picture of of the protagonist um, played by Lily Newmark. And I mean, I just wanted to know what you think of the artwork. Is that something again that is just kind of passed down to you, and then you say, okay, yeah, I like that, or was it your idea, or anything like that? No, I think the poster is kind of nothing to do with you. So you don't really get a say, I don't think, in usually, as far as I understand it. But this time we did. The distributors had, you know, what they were doing that. And then, weirdly, um, somebody contacted me on Facebook from Felicity. And I can't remember where she was, somewhere like in America, somewhere like Chicago or something random. And she said, oh, I've been asked to do this picture and, I, you know, I can't work out if it's fishing or if it's, like, real or... And she's, like, kind of does folk art. She's a folk art... Is it folk art? Artist. And uh, and she was like, have you made a film called Pinkush? And I was like, oh, yeah, no, it is real. And she was like, oh, well, that's all right then. And then, you know, kind of did the commission. And then and then she sent she sent me, like, the fir- her first sketch of it kind of thing, and then I fed back that, you know, I loved it. And then kind of was like, oh, could I have the background more like this? Or the colour, can it be this, you know, deeper or more saturated or, or whatever? And then, like, the distributors then started sending me drafts and then I got the opportunity to feed back. But I didn't get, any, you know, any, not on the wording or anything like that. That was all all to do with that. So so I do feel that I did have an input. but And I, and I do think, as I believe, that, I think that that is unusual because I think it's the distribution company that do the poster and the trailer. So, yeah, 
it's it's weird, isn't it, that you kind of then it kind of like gets decided by somebody else. But I think the thinking is behind it is that you're too close, and that it's their you know it's their talent to know audiences and the market, and you know to where best to position it and how best to position it. So um, I mean, luckily, I love the poster and the trailer. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I think the um, the poster for the DVD, I think that's really good. I think if I was, you know, just stumbling across it, I'd, I'd pick it up because it, in a way, looks like a foreign film as well. You know, it just looks different from like you know your Marvel and everything, which I know yeah. people, people like, but it just seems like it's going to be something different. And then obviously you turn it over and you read it. And I know they say, don't they, that you shouldn't like judge a book by its cover, but at the end of the day, this is how people do choose DVDs. So I absolutely. Think, and book, yeah, yeah, everything. even books though, yeah, even books, yeah. definitely. Like that saying is gone to yeah. me. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, um, absolutely. And I, hopefully, it does catch your eye and makes you think, oh, what's that? But in in terms of the whole process of making the film, and, and and you know, even down to now having the DVD out, are you happy with everything of of how it's all gone? Anything at all that you would have done differently? No, I don't think so. I think it's. I think actually the thing that I would have done differently is that I would have had more lists of ideas for people for cast because I remember, I mean, luckily it just worked out, but I remember um, like for Stevie Babes, the like psychic guy, we were like two two weeks into the shoot and we'd been talking to people or, you know, it hadn't worked out or I think, I think the dish, I think the private investors wanted somebody, you know, a, a, a big name so you could kind of advertise it or whatever. But that hadn't worked out because basically, you know, he's got two pages. Um, so it's hard to get, you know, like bloody Brad Pitt to come in and do a, a small thing for like two pages kind of thing. And so that had kind of like, and then we got tied up with shoots and, you know, busy and that. So stopped thinking about who that might be. And then, it, you know, it, then it crept up on us. And then I was, they were like, look, you know, we've got to cast this. And I was like, oh, oh well, well, you know, I'm thinking about the scene that I'm going to direct in a minute. So Gavin was just like, look, you know, like, we need some ideas. And I was just like, oh, shh, you know. And then I remember putting, like, um, Northern Actor 50s into Google. And then luckily seeing, you know, Bruce, like, let's batter his face. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I remember he was, like, brilliant in Raining Stones. And I was just like... Let's get him, <laughs> which, you know, it was great and it turned out great. And, I, you know, I don't regret any of that. But I think I think what I would do more in pre-production or before even pre-production is, like, have a list of, like, 20 possible names for, like, each character so that, you know, you can go down the list who's not available or whatever. You know, because people, like, say, oh, yeah, we'll do it. And then a job comes up, a bigger job for them, and they're like, oh, they're not available anymore, can't do it. You know, things like that. Just so you've got, like, lots of backup ideas rather than be put on the spot in the middle of a shoot when you, you know, your head's so full of everything. You know, if you've got that in your back pocket, then you can look and say, okay, well, what about this person, you know? So, yeah, I think that's probably what I'd have done different. But I can't think of anything else. I think everything else, you know, that there are happy accidents. And I think, you you know, it's true that you plan as much as you can, but then, you know, leave space for, like, magic to happen. And finally, then, um, you mentioned that you've, you know, got a few development projects. Mm. Is there anything that's kind of set in stone at all as, as your next thing coming up? Or is it always kind of development? Is it always kind of it could essentially lead to nothing? There's nothing, you know, because I haven't yet, you know, I'm still at like 
step outline stage. I have written the first draft of um, the, a biopic about Nikki Sanfal, but that's that, so that's the furthest that I've got with anything. But and that, but my other two are still, you know, I'm at step outline stage, so nothing, you know, I'm hopeful for everything that I'm writing, but you know, so many, you, you hear so much, don't you, that, you know, stuff doesn't get made in the end or, you know, things happen. So I don't know. All I'm, all I try to do is like enjoy what I'm doing at the minute. And I am really enjoying writing. That's what I'm focusing on. But, you know, I am determined. I like really, really, really hope that I do make a second feature because I think it, the statistics for women are much worse than for men, so yeah, that is why I think you are, whether you you realise it or not, you are a, a role model, aren't you now? Because you've you've proven that as a as a woman, as somebody who didn't leave school with GCSEs and so on, you know, you've proved that you can you can do something if you set your mind to it. So yeah, and I you, think you should be proud. Oh, thank you. Well, I just think you know anyone can achieve anything. You know, can you remember that program? There was a program where it was like where they took like I don't know somebody out of one whatever they were doing and then put them in another environment where you know they had to pretend they were a chef or something and then you know it's like oh do do they people believe that they are at the end of it kind of thing I think it is down to opportunity and and that we can all achieve anything really it's just you know we need to be at opportunity and the the way you make opportunity is to like you know imagine it dream it and also try and make those opportunities for yourself in whatever way is like right for you and also you know we have to remember that we're all going to be dead soon you know it's (laughs) going to be over before we even know it so you may you know you don't want to get to like 94 sitting in that nursing home thinking oh I wish I would have tried this I wish I'd have tried that you know it's like well nobody cares at the end of the day only you so you know we all have I think you know we should just remember about death and trife stuff and you know so we don't have those regrets because I think you know my regrets are the things where I've been like too shy or thought I wasn't good enough for this or you know and then I look back and think oh god I should have just gone for that so yeah so I'm trying I'm trying to live my life so I don't have regrets where I've you know not done stuff because of fear because I think it is true about that you know that film where it's the three kings is it three kings with George Clooney in and it's oh, like yeah, I love that film yeah. yeah and his character says like you don't get the courage to do something and then you do the thing you do the thing and then that gives you courage and I'm really I live by that because I think god it's so true and I do feel that I have changed from making a films a film and, and these films because I, I do feel that actually I feel more confident so I think you know I don't know I'm baffling I'm banging on about now I don't even know what I'm talking about I think I better shut up <laughs> no no it's I, I completely understand what you're saying um I loved how you know you were giving this big motivational thing and then you just brought back the dark and said we're going to be dead soon well we are it's true <laughs> I know we're all going to die <laughs> we all are Deborah Haywood thank you very much you're very welcome <laughs> You know, we all have to carve our own path. And and also, I think, you know, even if you don't get there at the end, you will have learned and grown so much as a person for that striving of that thing. 